Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Jacqueline Totterdale, Executive Chief Executive of St. George's University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. Jacqueline, hello. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much for coming on the program today. Uh, now, normally, uh, we'd get straight into the subject of leadership, but the thing that's for- overshadowed almost everything uh, this year, uh, we must talk about how has the COVID-19 outbreak affected your organization? So St. George's is a large acute trust um, in southwest London um, uh, that uh, is a tertiary centre, which means that uh, we take uh, lots of patients from other hospitals uh, when they need super specialist care. Mm. So St. George's became a centre for patients who required intensive care because of their uh, because of COVID. So um, we increased our intensive care beds from 66 to 150, uh, which was the the most amounts that we had. So we had um, we had a, a, probably the same as most hospitals a tough time. Um, our staff had a tough time, but they worked brilliantly together. Organized, uh, we organized ourselves in a way that meant we could deliver care in a very, very different way uh, over a very quick period of time, but sustained period of time. So I think our, our, our COVID time was probably much like everybody else's, but we had far more patients than your average hospital. Now, do you believe that this will permanently change the way that hospitals operate in general? Uh, yes, I think it will. I think it will uh, because of I think we've we've always been very aware about infection prevention and control. So how do we make sure and ensure that patients um, don't get infections in hospitals and that we keep them as safe as possible? But we've everybody, both in the hospitals and the public in general, have had to change how actually we we look after patients, how we keep patients safe, how we organize the hospital and I don't think it's going to go away very soon of course um, I, I also think that um, when when going through a COVID incident um, was like a sustained major incident so when we have a major incident a train crash or a plane crash usually you, the, the 24 hours a huge amount of activity and then you managing patients over a shorter period of time but with with this, it's it's a sustained um, major incident. And when you you you've involved in small and major incidents like plane crashes or bus crashes, you always remember them. Um, uh, my background's nursing, and I've been involved in quite a few. And you always remember them because of you know how devastating they were and how difficult it was. But for our staff, it, it didn't just affect a few people; it affected everybody. Mm. And psychologically. For them, um, thinking about that and reflecting on how many patients died or colleagues died um, uh, will stay for them with them and probably change how they think and feel quite radically. So I think I think it changes healthcare in in many different ways, not just in terms of how we operate the hospital, but actually how our staff respond and feel um, and reflect and go forward with those memories and those uh, visions that they have about 
spending, you know, two months in full PPE looking after very poorly patients. And what sort of support are NHS Trust is uh, providing uh, their staff uh, to help transition through this period? So um, during COVID, um, because we didn't have a lot of other patients coming into the hospital, I mean, that's a, that's a well-known fact that a lot of patients stayed away from hospital. We actually have quite a big cancer unit at St. George's. And we have a lot of cancer psychologists. And actually, because the work wasn't there for them with the cancer patients, they organised themselves into, uh, there are about 30 of them, uh, along with our health and wellbeing team, uh, into um, making sure that they went into areas and gave staff support, counselling one-on-one or in groups. And since then, we've actually decided to invest um, in in actually providing permanent, longer-term uh, psychology um, and health and well-being um, to staff in a more sustained way than we did before. So we've actually chosen to invest since that more in that area. Mm. We also were part of Project Wingman, uh, which is where a lot of the um, furloughed staff from um, from the airlines uh, came and actually ran well-being hubs, and that was greatly appreciated by the, the staff as well. So, um, and we also had the local people actually raise quite a lot of money to feed feed our ITU staff. Um, so they raised something like 180,000, which meant our ITU, which is where you had to have the most PPE, and it was probably uh, was, was very difficult. They actually uh, raised money and they fed they got they got them three hot meals a day. So it was a mixture of what we did in the hospital and actually the generosity and support of the public. Well, we should move on to the subject of leadership. I was like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? What does the word leader mean to me? Um, so for me, it's about um, the values you show, mm. uh, about the vision that you have, and the way that you respond and treat people. Um, I often talk in my own organization about leading with care. Um, because I think there's a huge responsibility on you to do that, to ensure that you know, I have 9,000 staff in my organisation, that both they can see visibly from me the direction of travel we're going and the right behaviours and intent around um, how we treat each other and how actually um, we treat our patients. So I think that's what leadership is for me. It's, it's, it's for me more about behaviours uh, integrity, uh, treating people well, as it is about having vision, being clever, uh, being tactical. Uh, that, for me, is what leadership is. Well, let's talk a bit about uh, your transition from uh, frontline nursing uh, to administration. How did that happen, and how has that affected the way that you lead today? So uh, my uh, area of specialty uh, when I was a nurse was children's intensive care. And um, I, I was asked to uh, go and open a children's intensive care unit in Leeds in 1992. And um, Leeds um, was quite forward thinking at that point. It was just after the Griffiths Review, where who said basically the NHS is woefully undermanaged. And so management structures were being put in. And it was my first real experience of seeing that working in a really good intentioned and structured way. And um, I had the opportunity um, to go and do um, 
a piece of um, improvement work, if you like, and management in the dermatology department. Someone took a chance on me, a guy called Pete, Dr. Pete Belfield, a wonderful guy who ran the medical division in Leeds. And uh, he realized that having focused management in areas of difficulty actually paid dividends. So I got the job to go and basically um, improve the dermatology department who um, had um, five-year waits for an outpatient. It was all run on big ledgers, um, and the patient experience is pretty awful. And um, um, and I, I learned a lot from Pete and from his team, and I really, really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed doing um, using what I knew about people through nursing and learning about systems and um, uh, learning about engagement. Um, uh, and we actually got our waiting times down from five years to six months and two over the course of 18 months. And actually, the department really began to flourish. And that, was, that wasn't just because of me. That was because actually we worked in a team across the consultants and nurses, uh, my uh, admin support. And uh, we, um, some people left and some new people came. And that was helpful as well. But, but that really showed me what good leadership could do and what focus could do. And I've, and I've just learned from there, really. Um, uh, it was it was somebody taking a chance, um, being in the right place at the right time, finding a team that I could work with, um, and and uh, having some good support from my boss. Has that answered your question? Absolutely. Now, what sort of uh, percentage of uh, administrators or executives within the NHS come from uh, licensed medical backgrounds? Um, uh, there's, it, there's a few. So when I look across South London in the, uh, from us, uh, St. George's, Kings and Guys, uh, both Kings and Guys have doctors who are their chief executives. Uh, in my own team, um, uh, I have a medical director. I have a chief nurse. My chief operating officer comes from a nursing background. My chief strategy officer uh, comes from a, um, uh, an AHP background. So I think it's becoming more and more that the uh, that that people's backgrounds do come from um, from from a clinical place. There are clearly some people that you know, like your your chief finance officer, who's more than likely not going to have a clinical mm. background uh, because of the nature of uh, the training they need and the experience that they have. But for me, sixty uh, percent of my team are from a clinical background. Fantastic. Do you feel that that should be a prerequisite for leadership uh, within the NHS? Um, not always. I mean, I, I've got other colleagues in, 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 so in Southwest London, my three other colleagues, none of them come from a clinical background, although all of them have been career NHS people. So, so they're, they're all, in my view, great chief executives. Um, so I don't, I don't think they, have to. I think the most important thing is it helps have a clinical background. I can often push and pull and ask more difficult questions sometimes having that. But I think, you know, curiosity, good for all the things I said about curiosity, um, is a good thing for a chief executive to have. Mm. And I see that a lot around the system, um, which is um, which is good. So I think, I think it helps. I don't think it's always necessary. Um, and I see really good trust being run by non- clinicians as I do, you know, trusts um, that are struggling being run by clinicians. You know, it doesn't, 
it doesn't automatically uh, follow on. I think, you know, good leadership skills um, are the most important thing. And if you happen to have a clinical background, I think that's, that's helpful. Now, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for St. George's? So, uh, several bits. We've just been redoing um, our, um, our what, do we, what are we going to do over the next uh, nine months to 12 months. Um, so, uh, you know, our staff do need setting some direction of travel. That does help, actually, post having these incidents, being clear about what your role is and what we need to do. So, we've, we've, um, we've, we've talked about uh, care, culture and collaboration. So, making sure we... In the peak, in the in the troughs of the peak, that we get as many patients treated as we need to, that we couldn't treat that whilst we were in a peak scenario, that we learn from the peak that we've just had and apply that to the peak we're we're possibly going to go into in the winter, so that we can organise ourselves quickly and do the things do things better where we need to, and not do things that didn't have any value. So that that's one bit. The culture that we we already started on a cultural change program. Uh, about you know how do we make sure we lead with care? How do we treat each other? How do we make sure that we do what we're you know we, we do what we need to do? So that will continue and the collaboration because actually the one thing that COVID has done is accelerate the direction of travel in NHS, which is about being a more collaborative organisation rather than being in competition with each other. And about how do we continue to be collaborative, work together, um, make sure that St George's does only what St George's can do support our DGHs, our colleagues, uh, GPs, etc. work as a system for the benefit of the patient. So uh, I think our, our path is very clear about those three things. But uh, the one thing that will underline that is our ability to be nimble uh, and to be flexible uh, because no one knows what's going to happen next month or the month after, what the next peak could look like or will look like, uh, at what point we may or may not have a vaccine. Uh, so, so the bit for us is being flexible enough to manage all of that and cope with that whilst keeping our staff with them and keeping them safe. Well, Jacqueline, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program today. It's been a pleasure to have you, and I do hope we can have you back on at some point in the near future. But for now, Jacqueline, thank you. Thank you. That was Jacqueline Totterdill, Chief Executive of St. George's University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is my exclusive interview with our chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being. 
and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. 
but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they 
you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. 
Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Sh- uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. 
Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have 
a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business 
playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, 
sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company, or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.